when Lou asked me to uh, give a paper that relates to the Federal Reserve, uh, I was working at the time on the issue of the federal debt and uh, the annual deficits, and was coming to realize uh, how much that problems of debts and deficits resolve themselves fairly quickly uh, into problems of the Federal Reserve. And in fact, it turns out that many other problems that we face today can ultimately be traced to the Federal Reserve. The problem of the international trade deficit, for instance, turns out to be largely a symptom of budgetary deficits, which in turn, as I hope to show, is basically a problem of the Federal Reserve. Uh, problems of uncertainty in the marketplace, of uh, lack of business confidence, as it's called sometimes, uh, can be traced to the deficit. And again, back to the Federal Reserve. Even, uh, as I hope to show, the recent farm crisis, uh, about which we've seen much, seen much footage on TV, narrated by Geraldo Rivera and others, uh, haven't been particularly informative. But uh, as I hope to show that even that uh, can be traced back through uncertainties created in the marketplace uh, to the trade deficit, uh, to the budgetary deficit, and once again to the Federal Reserve. So what I'm suggesting is that at least on macro issues, uh, all roads lead, or maybe I should say all fingers point uh, to the Federal Reserve System, and not just to the particular policies it happens to be pursuing uh, at the current time, uh, but rather to the very existence of a central bank which has the unconstrained ability to uh, print money. Well, to put this in a, in a recent historical context, we, we note that 1969 was the very last year in which we had a budgetary surplus. Uh, 1971 was the last year that our monetary system was linked to gold. Now, we admit that the surplus was a small one, the link to gold uh, was a loose one, but the experience we've had over the last decade and a half uh, have given increased significance to these last vestiges of monetary and fiscal responsibility. In that last decade and a half, there's been a lot of red ink flowing out of the Treasury, a lot of green ink flowing out of the Federal Reserve System, and we suspect that these are linked uh, both politically and economically, but the linkage is anything but uh, a simple one, uh, as evidenced by uh, the uh, journal articles that have come out over the last several years, trying to figure out just what that uh, relationship is. So I hope to shed some light on that uh, this morning. And I think uh, the place to start is by a brief uh, summary of the competing schools of thought and I've identified two major schools of thought, and then I'll suggest that there's one missing, and I'll try to fill in that uh, gap for you. I'm going to use the terms very loosely, uh, Keynesian and monetarists, Keynesian of really the old school of pump priming, uh, uh, deficits as uh, stimulants. Uh, they argue, and still argue, uh, that deficits can be a good thing, that they can stimulate the economy, they can buy us more growth. In fact, growth that uh, eventually will help us balance the budget, unless, of course, we wanted to stimulate some more. Uh, there is monetarism, and I'm admittedly painting with a broad brush here, uh, although uh, I cite in the paper Milton Friedman uh, as one of the uh, people who take this position, but 
I don't necessarily mean all monetarists. I'll say monetarists at the University of Chicago, uh, not necessarily monetarists at the University of Georgia, for instance. Uh, monetarists, and, and on this issue, we can almost, uh, without qualification, put in the supply-siders who, along with the monetarists, argue that uh, the deficits are benign, uh, they're virtually harmless. Uh, and these really are the two major positions taken in the academic journals today. Uh, they're either good uh, or they're harmless. Uh, I suggest there's a third position, and I'll get to that after we review these uh, uh, these first two. Uh, first, let me alert you to the fact that uh, this Keynesian view uh, has recently gained new life in the profession, and this is something to watch out for. I think uh, uh, I think Keynesianism isn't as dead in academic circles uh, as it was once thought to be. It's never been dead in political circles, of course. But what I'm referring to here is the old idea that the government can stimulate the economy by running budgetary deficits. Now, in academics, this uh, argument has been dropped uh, in, at a lot of universities, at least, simply on the basis of experience. The last uh, several decades have suggested that uh, this policy just doesn't work. As it turns out, though, uh, Robert Eisner has written a book. Some of you may have read, um, others may have read reviews. This, this is possibly the most reviewed book in economics this year. Uh, it's called How Real is the Federal Deficit? And in asking that question, it's a rhetorical question, how real is the federal deficit, you almost can guess uh, that he's going to say it's not very real. I guess there is a sense in which it's just unreal. Uh, <laughs> but that's not what he means, of course. Now, Eisner, uh, it's important that, that you know who I'm talking about. Eisner is a real grown-up economist who teaches at uh, Northwestern. He is very well known in the profession, and in fact, he is president-elect uh, of the American Economic Association, which is the largest, most prestigious economic association uh, in the United States. So the fact that, that, that Eisner is breathing new life into Keynesian theory and squaring as best he can the past experience uh, with Keynesian theory, suggesting that uh, recent economic history does not disprove the efficacy of Keynesian fiscal policy. It's important that you know it's, uh, that it's such a, uh, an important figure as Robert Eisner. Well, let's see what's going on with Eisner. Uh, what he's claiming is that we've been miscalculating the deficit. All the, all the truths that Keynes pointed out about deficits are still valid, except, except we just haven't gotten our act together. We haven't calculated it correctly. He says, over the years, people have been calculating the deficit simply by taking what the government spends and subtracting what it collected in revenues. That this concept of outgo minus income is just uh, too simplistic and too misleading uh, to be of any use to economists, or particularly Keynesian economists. Well, uh, frankly, I'm fairly comfortable with that way of calculating the deficit. <laughs> That's the way I calculate my own. Okay. <laughs> now, what Eisner suggests is that we redefine the deficit as uh, the net change in the monetary, I'm sorry, the net change in the market value of outstanding debt. 
Well, you're not quite sure what kind of a bill of goods he's sold you there, but I think I can show you fairly clearly with a, with a simple example. Uh, first, let's look at the conventional uh, measure and then the new uh, Eisnerian measure. And let me use the blackboard for this. What I'm going to do is use uh, sim very simple examples, uh, and yet one that will illustrate the point. Let's start out by assuming that the national debt is a trillion dollars. Okay, it's actually over two, 2.3, whatever. But let's say a national debt of a trillion dollars, and we'll write this in billions, a thousand uh, billion. Okay. Now let's further assume that in the current year uh, that the government spends. 960 billion, okay? So expenditures nine hundred and sixty billion. Let's assume that it managed to collect in taxes nine hundred billion. So taxes nine hundred billion, and here's where the simplistic calculation comes in. You subtract one from the other and you get uh what we call an old-style conventional deficit of 60 billion, to which, of course, we would add to our, our trillion dollars and get 1,060 billion in total debt. That's the conventional way that uh, even the government reports its own uh, deficits. Now, the Eisnerian deficit requires that we do just a little more supposing. Uh, Eisner supposes that the inflation is going on during this period to the tune of about 10%. Okay. Now he doesn't he doesn't ask why that inflation might be going on. After all, he's a Keynesian. Uh, inflation is attributable to rising prices, typically. Uh, but inflation is going on, and for better or for worse, it's going on, and the government needs to take that into account, and they need to think in real terms. Okay. So. Before we perform this operation of adding the 60, of course, we know why the inflation was going on. Federal Reserve was printing money, and the reason it was printing money in part is to monetize that deficit and possibly to monetize earlier increments of deficit that had been accumulated in the, in the past several years. Okay. But inflation is going on, and if it's going on at 10%, that means that at the end of the year, the real value of that thousand dollars is ten percent less than it was at the beginning of the year. So the first thing he does is subtract ten percent of the trillion, hundred billion, and he gets nine hundred billion, to which he adds now the sixty billion incurred during the current period uh, for a total of nine hundred and sixty billion. And then he compares that with the value at the beginning of the year, and he gets a $40 billion surplus. <laughs> the budget isn't surplus. Okay. Now, this one correction, it turns out, is enough to turn most deficits into surpluses. Okay, you can see the higher the inflation rate, the easier it's going to be. So the more the debt that you monetize, and the more the current deficit you monetize, the more you run a surplus. Okay, this is really pretty much Orwellian doublespeak. War is peace, slavery is freedom, uh, deficit uh, is surplus. Uh, 
but this is the way he calculates it. Also, you can see that the higher the accumulated debt, the easier it is to turn a conventionally defined budget into an Eisnerian surplus. The debt now is $2.3 trillion. If it gets, well, even at this height, it may become virtually impossible to run a deficit as defined by Eisner, okay? Uh, and in fact, as we'll see later, his rewriting of history on the basis of this measure shows that Jimmy Carter ran surpluses uh, during his entire presidency. But this is not all. This is not all with Eisner. He has other adjustments to make which are equally uh, perverse. And let me alert you to some of those. He adjusts for changes in the interest rate. Most of you understand that if the interest rate goes up, the value of bonds go down, reflecting the higher discount. Uh, and so remember that Eisner is measuring deficits as a change in the net in the market value, okay, which incorporates the current interest rates. So if the Federal Reserve is printing money, driving up prices, putting an inflation premium on the interest rate, that drives the market value of the bond prices down and we'll have even a bigger surplus than the 40 billion that we've calculated here. He makes another adjustment, uh, which uh, all Keynesians tend to make, that the budget he's measuring, the budget deficit he's measuring is not the actual budget, budget given the actual level of unemployment, but rather what's called the high employment or full employment budget. This was a technique, a terminology that came in during the Kennedy administration. Uh, and the deficit that would occur if we had full employment is the deficit he is interested in. This is uh, sometimes called the structural deficit. I call it the subjunctive deficit. This is the deficit if we would have, that we would have if uh, things were other than they actually are. Uh, the third adjustment, and this, this one is, uh, is uh, perverse as well, is he measures something called the real net debt. Uh, and the measure is net of the market value of gold held by the treasury and other assets as well, but let's focus on the gold uh, for a minute. So for starters, he upvalues that gold from its current nominal value of $42 an ounce to its uh, present market value. Uh, and that gives the Treasury a much larger asset in the gold it has, which is, re which is uh, taken into account when the deficit is calculated. And to see the effect of that, just think of the uh, effect on the Eisnerian measure of the deficit with the increase of gold prices, say from the levels of 350 up to 400. Uh, just a quick calculation is 268 million ounces of gold uh, changing in value by $50 gives you about $13 billion, okay? So once again, just by definition, uh, the deficit can be changed to reflect changing gold prices. And it's worse than just by definition, there's a strict perversity in there because if the government runs a debt conventionally defined, and then begins to monetize it, uh, people expect inflation, begin to buy gold, drive up the price of gold, uh, and that allows the government to claim that it has a more nearly balanced Eisenerian budget, okay? In fact, if fiscal responsibility is to be measured by the Eisenerian real net debt, politicians could gain simply by creating the expectations of inflation, <laughs> okay? <laughs> they can get you to expect inflation, they can get you to buy gold, you'll drive up the price, there goes their deficit, okay? Uh, 
Now, what's the significance of this deficit? Well, in, in redefining the deficit in these terms, Eisner has gone back and rewritten economic history over the last 30 years. All right, and what he has shown that in many cases we've run budgetary surpluses, especially the years 1977 to 81, uh, the Carter years, the years in which inflation hit double-digit levels. That's, that's what gave him the sharp uh, Eisnerian surplus. So he argues that, of course, the economy was sluggish during those terms. We were running a budgetary surplus. We should have been running a budgetary deficit. Let's start running a real budgetary deficit, an Eisnerian budgetary deficit. Let's, let's uh, borrow at such a rate uh, that we're actually in deficit even with Eisner's calculations. And then we can get the economy going again, uh, can uh, stimulate it, get growth, and uh, finally bring the budget into balance. Okay, that's the Eisnerian position. Let me turn now uh, to the monetarists what you're saying, uh, who are saying some peculiar things, and here I'm lumping in monetarists uh, and supply-siders, and uh, probably one of the most dramatic or unqualified statements came from Friedman on the uh, Phil Donahue show not, uh, not too long ago, where he simply argues that the deficit is uh, a red herring. Uh, it's a false issue. We don't, we don't need to be concerned about it at all. And there is, as it turns out, there's a kernel of truth in what he's saying. What he's pointing out is that the best measure of what the government is actually taking out of the private sector is its level of spending. Uh, never mind where it got this money to spend. If it's spending at a level of a trillion dollars or two trillion dollars, it's taking out of the economy that many resources. It's appropriating that many resources for its own use. And that, in real terms, measures the level of taxation. And what's left, of course, uh, is determined through simple arithmetic. Whatever the government produced, or whatever the economy produced, minus uh, what the government appropriated for itself by government spending, well, that leaves the private sector uh, with a difference. And that's what we should focus on. We should focus on reducing the spending, which of course we can all applaud, uh, but we can uh, focus on it to the exclusion of any attention paid to the method of finance, never mind how it financed it, taxes, deficit, printing money, uh, it just doesn't much matter. Well, what I'm going to argue is that uh, it does matter. Uh, sure, we need to be concerned about uh, government spending, but with a given level of government spending, it matters uh, how in particular it's financed. I might spend uh, a minute or two here uh, explaining what the monetarist arguments are. First, I think we can, I, could, I have detected that the monetarists are arguing on the basis of strategy considerations rather than any uh, real theoretical considerations. In other words, Friedman says very explicitly that he is concerned that if there's enough fuss over the deficit, uh, that that will lead us willy-nilly to be in favor of raising taxes. And that further, if we raise taxes, that will simply encourage the government to spend more and we'll have our deficits back and we'll have higher levels of government spending and we'll be the worse off, okay? Well, I, I sympathize with that. I think that's probably true. Uh, and yet that's a strategic consideration, uh, not, not a reason that we should not worry about the deficit, okay? The monetarists argue uh, on both uh, statistical and theoretical grounds that the deficits don't matter. Their, their theoretical argument 
hinges on something that's called the Ricardian equivalence theorem, which is really just a simple accounting identity that uh, equates stocks with flows, stocks of money with flows uh, of income. And it goes something like this, that uh, it doesn't really matter whether the government taxes, say, an additional $10, let's, let's take a simple example, doesn't matter whether the government taxes another $10 or borrows another $10 and pays the interest on that borrowing at, say, a dollar a year uh, over the indefinite future. This would assume an interest rate of 10%. In other words, if it borrows $10, uh, somebody lent it $10 at interest, uh, interest in the in to the tune of a dollar a year was collected on the debt, which then was taxed away according to the example uh, to pay the interest uh, for the government to pay the interest. So there is a basic accounting equivalence there, and yet for that accounting equivalence to translate into an economic equivalence would require that people actually save dollar for dollar for each dollar borrowed by the government. And the most casual empirical analysis suggests that uh, this isn't so. In some of the more extreme forms, uh, monitors will argue that people fully perceive the burden of taxation in the future and are busily saving up now in order to pay those taxes. And in fact, this, this would have to be the case for deficits not to matter in the uh, uh, in the Friedmanian sense. Well, of course, no such savings has taken place. In fact, I'll have some statistics in a, uh, a couple of minutes to show you the extent to which uh, borrowing is running ahead of savings. Um, the statistical argument is much more easily exposed, I think, uh, than the theoretical, because the statistical argument uh, simply amounts to expressing the deficit. You almost never see the de deficit expressed by monetarists and supply-siders in dollar terms. It's always as a percentage of something, okay? And it's always as a percentage of something that's big and growing, okay? <laughs> the GNP will do, okay? And in fact, uh, uh, one of my favorite uh, politicians uh, as uh, uh, argued that the primary purpose of the gross national product is to serve as a large number to which any other number will seem small by comparison. I mean, after all, <laughs> after all, almost anything is small compared with everything, <laughs> okay? And so uh, the figures you see on the deficit are deficits as a percentage of gross national product, deficits as a percentage of accumulated debt. That's a nice one. It, uh, <laughs> deficits are getting smaller by that comparison. Deficits as a percentage of uh, private sector borrowing, okay? And deficits as a percentage of debts of other Western countries. Well, you see, those are all big and growing <laughs> figures. And uh, if you just look at the percentages, you say, well, yeah, why well, worry about the debt? You know, it's only 0.2% or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. But if we calculate the deficit, okay, let's, let's do calculate it as a percentage, but let's choose the denominator on the basis of economic relevance and not just for statistical effect, okay? Well, what's the most relevant thing? Well, we're talking about the government borrowing funds, aren't we? Let's, so let's compare the funds that government borrows as a percentage of the total funds available for borrowing. That would seem to make sense. How much are they taking uh, compared to what's there to take? All right. Now, 
what I've done is just a very crude statistical comparison, but I've taken the last four years for which data is available, that's uh, 1982 to 85, and I'll compare that to the four years prior to that, 78 to uh, 81, okay? And what we see is if we compare it to private savings, government borrowing has uh, increased from 18% of private savings in the early four-year period to 55%, over half of all private savings being borrowed by the government in the uh, last four years. And even if you take total savings, which includes uh, corporate profits, retained earnings, uh, then the figure goes from 8% in the early four years to 27% uh, in this uh, last four-year period. Well, this illustrates several things. It illustrates that, uh, that sure enough, it had been a dramatic change, as if any of us would have doubted it uh, in recent years. It illustrates that the Ricardian equivalence theorem, while a healthy accounting identity does not describe savings behavior of, uh, of individuals in the economy, they're not saving dollar for dollar what the government's borrowing. And it also shows uh, that the trade deficit that there's so much concern about, justifiably so, is a direct re result of the trade of the budget deficit. In other words, uh, in order to be able to borrow this much, uh, the government is borrowing uh, lots of money from abroad, money that otherwise would be used to buy uh, U.S. exports. Okay, so that's what's killing the uh, export trade. Now, uh, so here now I can agree easily with, uh, with Ron Paul, who does see that the, deficits are, uh, the trade deficits are something to worry about. Austrians, Mises, and others have pointed out trade deficits per se aren't to be worried about. In other words, if there's a trade deficit that reflects some genuine comparative advantage between two countries, well, there's no problem in worrying. If the U.S. were really were better at in the service industries uh, than our trading partners, well, there would be a trade deficit on current accounts and nothing to worry about. But that's not the problem. There's a trade deficit precisely because uh, the government has a virtual insati insatiable appetite uh, for borrowing funds. Uh, okay, well, what I'm suggesting now, the monetarist view is simply uh, based on erroneously applied theory uh, and on some uh, pretty seedy statistics, really, comparing uh, deficits uh, as they do to other large uh, figures. What I want to do now is go on to spell out just what the problems of the deficit are. And I want to argue that the deficits are bad in and of themselves over and above the increased appropriation of funds that they allow. And the, and the uh, argument is a, is a very Austrian argument in that it relies on uncertainties created by uh, the government. Uh, both the Keynesians and the monetarists that I've dealt with overlook the, what I think we should call the debilitating uncertainties uh, that are associated with high budgetary deficits. And of course, I'm call it, talking about high conventional deficits, not as measured by Robert Eisner. And again, uh, let me use a simple example. Uh, suppose that the government expects to spend over the next several years about a trillion dollars. These numbers are just for illustration. And suppose that it anticipates collecting in taxes uh, $800 billion per year over the foreseeable future. Well, that gives us a conventionally defined deficit now and in the out years, as the administration likes to say, of $200 billion. There's a big distinction, though, in the minds of the 
private sector, in the minds of businessmen, between the 800 billion that's going to be collected in taxes and the 200 billion that's going to be collected somehow, okay? The 8 billion collected in taxes is collected on the basis of a fairly firmly established procedure, how, however uh, debilitating it is, at least it doesn't have as much uncertainty associated with it as, as do the deficits. We'll have to amend this uh, analysis to take into account uh, current uncertainty or even taxes, okay? But uh, for the purposes of argument, let's recognize that businessmen at least know what the current tax codes are, or at least they have a, an accountant or probably a whole department full of accountants who inform themselves what the tax codes are and what changes are. And they can plan their activities, plan their business decisions on the basis of that. Okay, they can decide where to invest, what sort of investment should be capital-intensive, labor-intensive, on the basis of how they know the government intends to collect uh, taxes. The other 200 billion is a different story. They don't know how those resources are going to be collected. Here the Friedmanian view helps us out, but it's not the whole story. Friedman would point out that that 200 billion in deficit really is just another 200 billion that the government's going to collect. And in his view, then, is therefore the same as taxes. Well, it is another 200 billion that the government's going to collect, but it's not at all like taxes, because the government's going to collect it sometime, somehow, from someone, but it's not saying. Okay. Now, this, is, this has a debilitating effect on the, on the investment sector. Uh, and in fact, they're not even sure just how much. And a, a best, the best way to read the projection of 200 billion is to see that that's really 300 billion plus or minus 100 billion. Okay, because this is based on the on the uh, OMB's rosy scenario, as it's called. <laughs> they know what the they know what the uh, most likely figure is, and and they know the variance, which is huge. Uh, so they report the low end. Okay. Uh, now, what do you do as uh, in the private sector? You've already made your decisions to account for what the tax code is, okay? And that's a problem. I mean, you're going to lose a lot of resources to, to the government, and you'd rather not, but at least you plan for it. But what do you do about uh, the $200, $200 billion deficits? Look what the government could do. It could just continue rolling over Treasury bills, in which case there's going to be high real interest rates in the future, uh, there's going to be a, a continuing foreign trade deficit as the government borrows from abroad as well as at home. The government could just unilaterally at any time begin monetizing the debt, in which case there would be a temporarily low uh, rate of interest followed by uh, inflation uh, and a high nominal rate of interest based on the inflation premium. Uh, or, the third alternative, there could be new taxes of some kind imposed on somebody somehow. Again, uh, the government is not saying how. Now, see, the, the position that Austrians used to take, and that, that was more, that say, fit even the Carter economy or uh, uh, earlier episodes in our, uh, uh, in our history, is that the reason deficits were bad uh, is because the government monetized them and that created inflation, which created uh, uh, problems in the marketplace, uh, misallocations of resources. And that argument is correct as far as it goes, but it really doesn't tell the whole story. Deficits are even worse 
because there's, a, there's an extra element of uncertainty. If we knew for sure they would monetize the deficits, it wouldn't be quite so bad. At least we could plan for that, however difficult it is to plan for inflation. We could plan for it. But instead, they've got deficits that they might monetize, might not, might roll over, might tax more. Who knows? Okay. Uh, and this, then, is the debilitating uncertainty uh, that we associate with deficits and that cause problems uh, in the marketplace. Uh, for instance, there's no way to hedge effectively for an individual entrepreneur as opposed to a, a, manage, a manager of an investment portfolio. There's no way to hedge against this kind of uncertainty. Not even Mark Skousen can tell you what to do in the, in the face of these kinds of deficits. Okay? What, sh what should businessmen do? Should they, should they shift their capital out of export industries expecting that there will be uh, trade imbalances over the foreseeable future? Well, I don't know. If, if the government starts monetizing the debt, that would have been a mistake. Should they uh, sign contracts on the basis of the current structure of interest rates? Well, if the Fed starts increasing the money supply, uh, that will uh, turn into losses. Uh, how about just pricing of assets, uh, buying and selling of land and durable assets? Should that reflect the current inflation rate? Well, not necessarily, because uh, if the Fed starts monetizing debt, inflation rate will change, the price of those assets uh, will change, and a purchase or a sale turns out to be uh, a mistake. So what happens instead is that there's a scramble for liquidity. In fact, uh, I think one of the key explanations for why the demand for money uh, is, is currently high uh, is simply the, the, the scramble for liquidity because of the uncertainty created by uh, uh, the deficit. So a lot of people are simply sitting, sitting back, which means output is less than it otherwise would be, and those that aren't sitting back are just taking a guess of what the government will do uh, and proceeding ahead. If they guess wrong, of course, resources will turn out to be uh, misallocated. Let me uh, put into this context, then, the uh, farm crisis. All right, and this is a straightforward explanation of what's happened uh, in the farming sector because in 1980, farmers had to make a decision. Farmers and their creditors had come to understand that, the, that their profitability, their future fortunes, depended as much on their ability to predict what the government's going to do next as it depended on their ability to produce agricultural products and sell them in the marketplace. And they knew that there were these tremendously high deficits, which traditionally the government monetizes, creating inflation. And after all, our recent experience had been high inflation in the Carter years. And so the farm sector bet on inflation. They, they bet that there would be inflation in the 80s, just like there was in the 70s. Many farmers, egged on by their creditors, uh, incurred debts much larger than would have been prudent in a market uh, characterized by stable prices, okay? And see, in, in one sense, you have to spot it to the farmers. They, they were predicting that the government would behave irresponsibly in the future. Well, that one's not too hard to call, <laughs> okay? <laughs> but they had, that's not good enough. You can't make money by predicting that the government will behave irresponsibly in the future. You have to, you have to predict the particular way in which it will be irresponsible, okay? Will it be irresponsible in running up horrendous deficits? Will it be irresponsible in, in uh, creating lots of money? Well, that's anybody's guess. And the farmers guessed wrong, okay? 
Can't blame the farmers for that. Economists guess wrong too. I didn't think that the government would uh, uh, would go this long without uh, a rapid rate of monetization. They guessed wrong, so look what happened to them. They overextended themselves on the basis of credit, hoping that just like in the 70s, their, their debts would be eroded away as the government eroded its own debts away. Okay, well that didn't happen, so the debts became more burdensome as time went on. Further, interest rates went up as the government put increased pressures on the credit markets, so just the cost of farming increased. And thirdly, since the trade deficit was large and growing, this put a damper on uh, the markets for agricultural exports. So the, the, the farmers couldn't sell their uh, exports because of the trade imbalances. They, they, they couldn't uh, uh, cover the cost of farming because of high interest rates and they were still burdened by their large debts because of the lack of monetization. Okay, And so uh, a number of farmers, many of them, uh, went bankrupt. It's little consolation to them to understand that in the end they'll probably be right. In other words, eventually the government will start monetizing the debt, the inflation will come about and erode the government's debt away, but not the farmers. They've already gone out of business. So what I'm suggesting here is that the farm crisis is directly attributable to the uncertainties faced by farmers in 1980, which is directly attributable to the unfunded uh, portion of the government's expenditures, the deficits. Okay. Uh, it, it all ties together. Okay, now let me turn. Now we've discovered that sure enough, deficits are a bad thing, Keynesians and monetarists notwithstanding. Let me turn now and, and look at the prospects for solving the problem in the current institutional setting. And I'm going to claim that it's, it's uh, nil. Okay, And here we need to apply the simple principle of marginalism that's associated with the Austrian school, uh, Friedrich von Wieser and recognize how governments, how political official, officials think about these issues. And here we need to shift gears a little bit. And uh, you see this in the literature a lot where they, they start out saying, assume uh, that there's a given level of GNP, okay, and assume that the level of government spending is given. All right, well, we can assume that. And in fact, it's significant that we're assuming that. We need to assume that in order to figure out how politicians are thinking. Of course, the GNP is not given. The GNP is a lot smaller than it would be if we didn't have a big deficit. It's a lot smaller than it would be if we didn't have the big government expenditures. But that's not the political official's perspective. He takes the GNP as given, and he takes uh, how much he wants to spend as given, and he's just gonna ask the question, how is he gonna finance it, okay? Well, he's got three ways. He can tax, he can print, he can borrow, okay? Three alternative ways to, to finance uh, the deficit. Now, simple principles of marginalism would mean that we'd be very surprised if they'd simply forswear one of those ways. Wouldn't you be surprised if they said, well, we're not going to tax anymore, we're only going to print and borrow. And we're not going to print anymore, we're only going to tax and borrow, or we're not going to borrow anymore, balanced budget. We're just going to tax and print. No, that doesn't happen. What happens is that the politicians will push at the margin each one of those ways of financing to the point where the cost of raising another dollar of revenue is the same. Okay, 
Now, what costs count? Well, it turns out it's the, it's the political costs that count for the politician. And the political cost to the politician is a direct reflection of the costs as perceived by the voters. All right? So those are the costs that count. Now we're in a good position here to see what's going on. That uh, taxes have the most explicit cost. If you, have, if you have to pay taxes, you don't have any doubts about what it's costing you. You're forking it over to the government on April 15th, every time you buy something. That's a, that's a fairly obvious uh, cost. And so it's not surprising that in an environment where there are no constraints on money creation, and where there are no effective uh, limits on the deficit, that they would favor the other two methods which have indirect costs and are more difficult to perceive. Okay? So they tend to favor printing money or, uh, or borrowing. Now, it turns out that the costs, as perceived by the voters, uh, aren't constant, but they vary with experience. In other words, the more experience you have with inflation, the more costly you perceive it as being. Or the more experience you have with the deficit, the more costly uh, you perceive it as being. Okay? So let's look at just a recent historical period and we can see what was going on. That in starting, say, uh, in the uh, mid-60s, inflationary finance was the preferred method. And voters didn't see the cost of inflating. But over the years, and especially with the Carter administration when we had double-digit inflation, eventually people began to perceive the high cost of inflation. And when they did, then that cost, of course, is perceived also by the elected official who sees that printing is getting to be too costly a way to raise funds, and so we need to shift into some other indirect way of financing, so to shift into borrowing. Uh, in credit markets, okay? And sure enough, uh, that's a difficult cost to perceive. It's not a direct cost like taxation. It's not like inflation, which we've learned the cost of the hard way. And so over the next several years, uh, it uh, raises its funds largely by borrowing, not so much by inflating. But eventually, voters, not necessarily economists, but voters come to see the high cost of borrowing. Okay, and and that's happening now. People associate deficits with uh, high costs. They think they're high political costs. They're a bad thing. They want something done, and so we can uh, look at this marginal analysis. We predict this is going to be another shift. But where do you shift to now? Look, people still remember inflation. It hadn't been that long. Memories aren't that poor. They still remember inflation. You can't shift back there. You're you're borrowing now, and people are seeing the cost of that. You need to sh you need to shift somewhere else. Well, all of a sudden, this puts into perspective the current tax reforms, okay? Uh, lower the perceived cost of taxing, okay? Now, one thing you notice by all of the, uh, all the tax proposals, no matter whether it's Treasury 1, Treasury 2, or all the other taxes, and, tra and taxes, incidentally, now are becoming more like debt. In other words, they're uncertain. You don't know where they're going to strike next, okay? So, in, in, in a sense, deficits are just like taxes, but taxes are changing. You know, they're just getting as bad as deficits. <laughs> but look what's happening. In all the proposals, all the proposals, one of the major shifts is a shift away from individuals and into corporations, corporate taxes. All right? Well, what's the gain for corporate taxes? They're hard to detect. You don't see the costs. Okay? So the idea is to, is to lower the cost of taxing by relying more heavily on corporate finance. If, uh, if the corporate tax 
uh, increased corporate taxes enacted, of course, that tax ends up being paid by individuals too. There's no one, you know, there's no one else in the economy to pay them, and but it's paid in an indirect, indirect way. It's paid through higher prices for consumer goods. It's paid through lower wages. It's paid through uh, smaller dividends. All right. These are all difficult to detect. In fact, because of the intricacies of capital theory. It's difficult to, even for economists and econometricians, to figure out what that incidence is. How does the corporate tax fall on different income groups and different consumer groups, and therefore how does it fall on voting blocks? Well, we don't know. Economists don't know. And politicians love it that they don't know. Okay, Hubert Humphrey used to argue that, uh, that uh, if the economists couldn't identify who actually paid the tax, that that was equivalent to the tax being paid by no one. And he was for it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, so you can see what's happened. The inflation is too fresh in our memory to go back to that. The cost of raising money through credit markets is increasing by the election. And the move now is to shift into taxes, but to change the taxes so they're more difficult to perceive. Okay. Now, if, if we're anywhere near the mark on our analysis, we can see what the difficulty is in uh, gaining uh, fiscal responsibility of government <clears throat> in the current institutional setting. Think what would have to happen. <clears throat> Political watchdogs would have to first figure out who's paying the corporate tax and in, educate them about that and rally the political forces to make that costly, while at the same time, keeping alive uh, the memories of the horrors of inflation uh, and runaway deficits, okay? You know, this is extremely difficult to do. What I predict is by the time people finally catch on to the corporate tax or possibly the value-added tax, if they try that too, well then, <clears throat> memories will have faded sufficiently that they can go back to inflation, <laughs> okay? <laughs> so. Uh, okay, now, when we apply this marginalist solution, we have to make this one uh, modification when it comes to government because, see, marginalist solutions in the marketplace are pretty stable. You just push at the margin until, until you've equated marginal benefits with marginal costs, uh, and then that's the end of it. But, but the governments tend to binge, okay? And they tend to binge partly because just the decision-making apparatus is centralized, and partly because of these uh, changing perceived costs. They'll, they'll binge in an area where the costs are less perceived until they become clearly perceived, and then they'll go off <coughs> binging in some other direction. And that seems to be what's happened, uh, what's happened today. Now, let me take a slightly different view now and show you <coughs> that even though that these alternatives are substitutes at the margin, in other words, you can tax, you can borrow, uh, or you can inflate, it turns out that institutionally they have a different relationship, that the ability to borrow is ultimately dependent on the power to tax and the power to create money. And the way to draw this out is to show you uh, what the comparison is between, say, a business firm that's borrowing or a municipality that has the power to tax, but not the power to print money. And then the federal government, okay? And start with the, uh, with the business firm. The business firm has some very severe, quick working market signals, market constraints on its ability to borrow. If, if a business firm overextends itself, 
borrows too much, it gets clear signals that it has to mend its ways. It faces a high default risk premium on future loans. Uh, its equity shares fall. Uh, these are both strong signals to tell it that it's borrowing too much. And what it has to do is either raise more capital or cut back its operations, and if that doesn't restore health, well, ultimately it could fail altogether. Uh, that's how the market works and allocates credit to different business firms. Municipalities are slightly different. With a municipality, uh, they have the power to tax, but not the power to print. All right. Now, the power to tax means that the continued existence is guaranteed, and so that makes the bonds safer. But the fact that they don't have the power to print money means that there can be a default risk premium on those bonds. Now, cities are able to exceed the limits imposed on business firms. They can borrow well beyond any limits that would be impossible for business firms because they've got the power to tax. They have staying power in the market. But they can't borrow indefinitely, as New York and other cities discovered in the 1970s. Eventually, they overextend so much that a default risk premium shows up in those bond prices that the interest rate at which they have to borrow roll over the debt becomes so prohibitive that they need to do something about it. But they never do anything about it until it reaches crisis proportions, okay? So in other words, the fact that, the fact that municipalities are partly insulated from the market allows them to be physically irresponsible to the point of causing a crisis, but the fact that they're not totally insulated means that they have to deal with crisis, as New York City eventually did, okay? Now when we turn to the federal government, we see that uh, it has both the power to tax and the power to print money. This means that it can extend its credit, it can borrow and borrow, even borrow to pay interest on what it just borrowed, without getting any default risk premium on its, on its bonds. And then it can postpone whatever perceived political crisis exists almost indefinitely because the cost of borrowing uh, is no more than it was initially. In other words, there's no default risk premium uh, on those treasury bills. What I'm showing you here is that the very existence of the Fed, whether it's printing money at the current time or not, is giving us problems. The very existence, the very power to create money keeps a default risk premium off of government securities. Okay, and, put, and therefore there's no limits on how much, uh, uh, how much it can actually borrow. Now, if the government actually does resort to monetizing, that further tips the scales in its favor. Just think about it. If, it. if it starts monetizing, it increases the price level, gives you an inflation premium uh, in interest rates. But this affects all credit markets, not just the government. So that doesn't discourage lending to the government relative to other business firms or, or relative to municipalities. Okay. Further, the inflation makes it difficult for business firms to calculate uh, profit prospects. They, they don't know what the interest rate is for sure. They don't know what output prices are going to be or input prices. So businesses become less profitable. It's more of a crapshoot in, in lending to businesses in an inflationary period. Better shift your money into government securities that at least have no default risk on them. Okay? And, and additionally, the government, by virtue of having such a horrendous debt, benefits relative more 
by eroding the debt away as it inflates, as Eisner has uh, made use of uh, in his recent writings. Okay, so the government benefits triply, really, from uh, uh, from inflating once it has exceeded all limits in, in the amount it borrows. So in recognizing this, now we have to take all this into account when we decide what kind of reform measures we want. All right, and what I'm going to suggest is that uh, all of the current reforms uh, will fail. That you can't simply enforce a debt limitation ceiling. You can't uh, indicate by resolution that the Congress and the Treasury should behave fiscally responsibly when in fact it has no incentive to do so. Uh, you can't make do with a, 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 a deficit reduction amendment because it has no incentive to abide by it. Uh, even a balanced budget amendment to the Constitution is simply a legal mandate that the government behave in some fiscal responsible way, but it, but it is inherently unenforceable. And th this tends not to be recognized, I think, in current debate. But if you think about it, you can see why it's unworkable. That, uh, the budget as submitted to the Congress by the President is not so much a political decision on what the deficit will be, but really is a politically charged forecast about what the economy will do. If you want to submit a balanced budget, just project 10% growth in the economy and all those tax revenues and very few unemployment payments. You've got a budget deficit, okay? And if it turns out that the projections are wrong, if the rosy scenario is a little on the thorny side, then who do you put in jail? Tip O'Neill? Well, <laughs> there's, no one, there's no one to put in jail. There's, there's no one you can point the finger to. Somebody just made an erroneous forecast. And in fact, it doesn't even give guidance for what to do next year. If you ask Eisner for guidance, he would say, well, I'm sure we run a budget deficit. We didn't spend enough. If we'd spent more, we'd stimulate the economy, generated more tax revenues, uh, and would not have run the uh, the deficit. So what I'm suggesting, what I'm suggesting is that the only way to put discipline on the government is to get a default risk premium on government securities, which would require the abolition of the central bank. Okay, if the government cannot print money, cannot monetize the debt, then even for the federal government. At some point, there would be a default risk premium on those securities. Borrowing further would be counterproductive, both economically and politically, uh, and the government would have to cease its borrowing, bring its spending uh, in line with its tax base. So to put this into a historical context and conclusion, in 1932, Franklin Roosevelt was willing to rely on the personal character of politicians to solve the deficit problem. And in his campaign speech, he says, let us have the courage to stop borrowing. Well, once it was discovered that courage had failed, people turned to other alternatives. Let us have a legal debt ceiling. Let us have a deficit reduction amendment. Let us have a balanced budget constitutional amendment. All these measures, uh, either have or will fail to do what only market discipline can do. So I end with the suggestion, let us have a default risk premium on government securities. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs>